the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Luke is written so that we might know we have a reliable faith. The events written about in the book were eyewitness accounts that Luke researched for himself and wrote down for all to see. We have seen that Jesus, the Savior of the world, was born to a poor carpenter family in the city of Nazareth. He grew up and lived a normal life, doing woodwork till the age of 30 when he started his public ministry, calling all people to repent of their sins and turn to God. Jesus performed many miracles, healing the sick, the blind, the paralyzed, even casting out demons that had gone into people. The scribes and Pharisees were outraged when Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and offered forgiveness of sins. They were especially angered when Jesus and his disciples had dinner at a tax collector's house. The Pharisees and scribes chose the traditions that were laid out by previous rabbis rather than God's own words. They accused Jesus and his disciples of breaking Sabbath traditions by healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 6, verse 8. Verse 8, it says, But he knew their thoughts and said to the man which had the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. And we need to point out something very important first here. That word where it says he knew their thoughts is a very unique word. It's in the pluperfect tense in the Greek, which is something most of you have probably never heard of. We don't use it in English. We don't have a pluperfect tense. It's rare and unique to the Greek language. The pluperfect tense, I need to read the definition because it's rare even in the Greek language. It indicates a completed action from the past whose results from that completed action exist in the past. Everybody confused yet? It's a completed action that happened beforehand with results that existed beforehand. So this has nothing to do with the present, and yet it's not just a reference to the past. It's a past action that had effects in the past. So we're not taking a snapshot of the past, but a completed action in the past that had results for a while in the past. What I'm saying is that Jesus didn't just supernaturally know what they're thinking right now. He knew long before this day happened, what they would think, and he had already made a plan back then how he would deal with it. He knew their thoughts before they thought them today. There was a point somewhere in the past that he knew what was going to happen this day, a point somewhere in the past that based on what he knew, he decided what he was going to do. So this isn't a situation here where Jesus is just really good at reading people, nor does it mean that as he's there, the father says, hey son, these guys are upset and they're thinking you're going to do this. No, 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 no. It means that Jesus knew about this, this day, before he ever became a man. And that makes this one of the strongest statements of the deity of Christ in all of Scripture. Only God can know those things. I don't know things before they happened. You know, there's times where maybe the Lord puts something on your heart and he gives you some advance warning. But that's not even what we're talking about here. 
most of the things we face, they just happen. We go, okay, Lord, what do I do? And we have to trust him for direction. That's not what's going on here. This is something Jesus knew about in the past, had decided how he's going to handle it in the past, and now he's here. It's one of the strongest statements of deity of Christ because God is the only one who knows everything. No man can know things like he knew things here. Having said that, it says now, knowing that, he said to the man who had the withered hand, he said, buddy, come on out. And he brings him right into the middle where everybody can see him. Why don't you get up? Come on out here. And so he comes out and stands in the midst. Everybody can see him. He's right there for everybody to see. Everybody sees his hand. Everybody knows his situation. Before Jesus heals the man, he wants everyone to get a good look at the situation. Here is a person created by God, loved by God, who is suffering. Everyone's heart, when they look upon this man, should be number one, move to compassion, and number two, be excited that there was an opportunity to help him because Jesus was there and he can heal. And when Jesus brings him out, he's trying to get everybody into that mindset. Everyone's heart to be right where it's supposed to be because the thought is, why would helping this guy or not ever even be a question? They might say, I get that. Why would they have this issue? Well, see, there was a controversy between the schools of Hillel, a famous rabbi back then, and Shammai, another famous rabbi, whether even comforting a sick person on the Sabbath was allowed, because that would be doing the job of of a physician. Your bedside manner, comforting a sick person, well, that's what a doctor does. And so you're doing work on that day, so you can't even do that. That's how crazy these people are. That's an absurd thought. Jesus was not lying when he said that these guys make themselves throw up to ensure they didn't swallow a gnat by mistake, but they had no problem eating a whole camel. They ignored obvious truth for all these little tiny things. So Jesus is giving them an opportunity to fix their hearts. Look at the man. Get your eyes off me for a second and look at this guy. Have some compassion and be excited that I can help him. And once they'd all had that opportunity to fix their hearts, Jesus now asked them a question. Then Jesus said unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Can I say to you, if the Lord ever comes to you and says, I just have one question, Will, you're probably in trouble. I've just one question for you. You're probably ignoring something obvious. The Lord oftentimes will come to me like that. I'll be upset about something or bothered by something. And the Lord will just say, well, I've just got one question for you. What rights do you have? And then your heart melts because you know you're off. Will, am I not enough for you? Lord, what am I doing? And that's what Jesus is trying to do here. I've just got one question for you. This isn't a complicated. And it's to, in a sense, bring a little bit of shame. But not the shame that sends you away crying, but the shame that draws you close to go, I'm so sorry, Lord. What am I thinking? Is it lawful, permitted, authorized on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil? Of course, it's never a bad day to do good, right? And it's never a good day to do evil, to save life or to destroy it. The word save means to rescue from danger. Sometimes it's actually translated heal. Is there ever a bad day to heal somebody? Is there ever a good day to destroy someone's life? Now that's an interesting question because Jesus isn't going to wreck this guy's life if he waits 24 hours to heal him. I mean, destroy is a pretty powerful word, don't you think? He's not going to destroy this guy if he says, listen, it's the Sabbath day, dude. Let's just wait till tomorrow. He'll be all right. It's not, it's not a life-threatening disease. He's not going to destroy his life. So what is Jesus getting at when he uses that word? Is the Sabbath day a good day to save life or to destroy it? 
See, I think what Jesus is getting at is he's addressing the Pharisees' thoughts towards him. See, Jesus is trying to do good on the Sabbath by helping people, helping this man. But what are they doing? They're trying to destroy Jesus, right? That's what they're trying to do. Some of them even want to kill him. So I think what he's asking them, you think I'm doing evil on the Sabbath. Can I ask you, have you checked your heart to see if you're doing evil on the Sabbath? Because I know I'm doing good. And the problem was they hadn't checked their heart. See, Jesus is giving them yet another opportunity to repent, to let God rescue them from their pride and their self-righteousness. Do they take that opportunity? Sadly, they don't. Look at verse 10. And looking around about upon them all, which means, literally means he looked at them one at a time. He looked at every Pharisee there one at a time. And as he's looking at them, what he's telling them, you don't have to go with this just because the dude next to you is, is being stubborn. You don't have to go along with this. Make your own choice. You could do the right thing, but no one budges. In fact, they don't even answer his question. And so Jesus, he's going to move on because he won't be party to their stubbornness. He's going to do the Father's will. And so he said to the man, stretch forth your hand. That's a weird thing to ask a guy who can't move his hand, isn't it? Stretch forth your hand. It's paralyzed, Jesus. I can't move it. That's the problem. (laughs) Jesus asked him to do the impossible, doesn't he? But I found Jesus asked me a lot of times to do what I consider to be impossible. And the good news is this. Anytime Jesus asks us to do the impossible, he gives us the ability to do it. And so the only question is whether or not I'll obey. And in this case, the man trusted God. And look at what happened. It says, and he did so. Isn't that cool? He did the impossible. He stretched forth his hand and his hand was restored whole just like the other one. What an awesome miracle, isn't it? I mean, what a cool thing. I mean, everybody should be excited, right? Nope, not everybody thought it was awesome. Verse 11, and they, the Pharisees, were filled with madness. That's not insanity madness. That's like full out, I am upset at you, Jesus, right now. I am very mad with you right now. It means extreme fury, great rage. They were just out of their mind, angry at Jesus. And what happens when you're this angry at somebody? You start thinking of ways to hurt them. And so they communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. The word commune means to have lengthy discussions over time. They've done. They had seen enough. The inspection is over. Jesus is guilty of all sorts of wrongdoing in their mind. So now they're going to have many meetings to come up with a plan of how to get rid of him. So while they plot doing evil on the Sabbath... Jesus continues about his father's work, doing good on the Sabbath. Verse 12, and it came to pass in those days, the days where they're communing against him, the days where he's experiencing now opposition in his ministry. In those days when these people are mistreating him, that he went out into a mountain to pray and he continued all night in prayer to God. So while the religious leaders are plotting against him, Jesus spends the entire night in prayer. Now it's frustrating when people are out to get you, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where somebody's just, they're out to get you. I mean, they, whether it's a coworker or a boss or a family member or neighbor or whatever, you know, they just, they got, they're upsetting about something and they're just out to get you. It's frustrating. And the problem is because we experience that frustration, it's tempting to think that this is why Jesus spent an entire night praying up on the mountain. But it's not. His actions in the morning show us otherwise. Because what does he do in the morning? The reason he was praying was because he had to select 12 men to be, his inner circle, his, his disciples, his closest disciples that would become the apostles. That's what he was praying about. Why am I bringing this up? Why is that point important? It's important because Jesus never let anyone else determine what he would focus on or what he would do. And often when we've been wronged by someone else, even when we do the right thing and we don't retaliate, there's the danger of letting 
the wicked actions of others control us when we allow what they've done to dominate our thinking. When we've been offended, when we've been mistreated, to let what happened dominate our thinking. God has given each of us ground to occupy. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. He said, occupy till I come. And I don't know whether that ground is your, you know, pouring into your kids, it's your marriage, it's your, your work, it's your ministry, whatever it might be. The, God has given to each of us ground to occupy. And he said, occupy till I come. That's ground I want you to take. Just like Caleb, when God gave him that hill and had the giants on it, he said, Caleb, that's your hill, go take it. God has given to each of us a place and he says, take that ground. You trust me, be obedient to me, you be faithful with the task I put in front of you. And as, as we're running up that hill, if somebody is out to stop us and out to get us and they trip us up, and when we fall down and we look at them and go, you jerk, and then we start pummeling on them, we revile them back, we hurt them back, what is the difference from that if our reaction is to fall on our face halfway up the hill and go, nobody likes me? Why is everybody against me? Either way, we're not getting to the top of the hill, right? So when someone mistreats us, whether we react poorly to them or not, whether we handle our reaction to them right or not, either way, we cannot let their actions dominate what we're gonna do. God has work for us to do in the midst of being mistreated. And if I'm agonizing over the wrong done to me, I will not move forward. And the enemy of our souls is just fine with that. We should never be surprised when God tells us, take that hill, and we're charging up the hill like Caleb, and all excited, and somebody comes in front of us and cuts us off. We should never be surprised by that. That should be the norm. Because whatever the enemy wants to do is to stop us from taking that hill. And whether it's because we get off track, because we react wrongly to them, or because we fall on our face and feel sorry for ourselves, either way, we don't get to the top of the hill. And he's perfectly fine with that perfectly fine with that. God wants me to be governed by him, not by the actions of others, good or bad. Jesus is our perfect example in this. He says it many times, but I love what he says in John 8, 28 and 29. He said unto them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you shall know that I am and that I do nothing of myself. But as my father has taught me, that's what I speak. And he that sent me is with me. Yeah, everybody else, you all are against me, but my father's with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Jesus says, whatever my dad tells me to do, that's what I do. He's the boss. Tells me to take that hill, I take that hill. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Gates, we always use that usually as, you know, enemy's not gonna get me. Gates are a defensive weapon. We're on the offense. The Bible says the righteous take it by force. He's not saying with force of arms. The idea is it's a spiritual principle. We're on the offensive, There are people out there who need to know the Lord. And God has put you in the environments he's put you. Not so you can go, God, why did you put me here? There's opposition. He's like, yeah, duh, they need to get saved. Take the hill. The gates of hell won't prevail against you. Take the hill. And we have to keep charging up, just like Jesus did. So what was the next task that the father had for Jesus? Well, choosing the 12 men who would be his closest disciples and become the nucleus for the church. And so verse 13 tells us after that night of prayer, he didn't say, oh man, all right, I'm better now. I think I got my heart on the, my mind on the Lord and you know, I'm not worried about the Pharisees anymore. No, no. When it was day, he called unto him all his disciples, all the crowds were following him. And from them, he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. And this is the first time they're called apostles. And it means one who is sent forth as a specially 
commissioned messenger. They really didn't serve in that role until after Jesus died and rose again. Their job was to be his eyewitnesses of his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his life forever. They did that. They laid the foundations of the church. So who did he pick? Well, it lists them here. Simon, whom he also named Peter. We already met him earlier in Luke and how he became a disciple. Andrew, his brother. We already found out how he became a disciple. He, at the same time Peter did. James and John, those were Peter and Andrew's partners in the fishing business. We know how they became followers. But then it mentions the apostle number five and six, Philip and Bartholomew. First time they're mentioned here in Luke. Bartholomew's name is also known as Nathaniel. Philip and him were friends. And when Philip started to follow Jesus. He came to tell Nathaniel, he said, Nathaniel, the coolest thing ever. We found the Messiah, man. Totally, it's legit. We found him. And Nathaniel's going, okay, where's he from? He's from Nazareth. Beantown? I've never heard of anything good coming out of Beantown. I don't think you found the Messiah in Beantown. That's what Nazareth means. It means Beantown. And so, no, 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 you got to come and see. So Nathaniel says, all right, I'll come see. And of course, what happens as he's coming to see Jesus comes to meet them. And he goes, ah, Nathaniel, now there's an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. You're, you're a man of integrity. And he's thinking, I've never met this guy before. How do you know me? He knew he was right though. How do you know me? And he goes, oh, Nathaniel, before you were, when you were under that tree, I knew you. And he goes, you are the Messiah. You're right, Philip. He's the guy. And Jesus goes, because I told you that. I told you you're under a tree. You think I'm the Messiah? You're going to see greater things than that. You're going to see the Son of Man ascending and descending on that ladder you were meditating on when you were under the tree. I don't just know where you were. I know your thoughts, Nathaniel, because I'm God. Bartholomew, I don't know if that's the new name Jesus gave to him, but he became one of these apostles. Verse 15, number seven was Matthew. We already met him. He was the tax collector who threw the party in chapter five of Luke. Thomas, that's the one we usually know as Doubting Thomas. Uh, he was called Thomas or Didymus. Didymus means twin. So he had a twin. I don't know if the twin was a believer, but Thomas was. He was a courageous man, even though he was, I don't think, I don't really think we should call him Doubting Thomas. We should probably call him Depressed Thomas uh, because he, he was a realist. He looked at things and he saw them how they were, but he was courageous. There's a time when Jesus said, hey, let's go down to Jerusalem and go see Lazarus. But to go down to Jerusalem was death. They were plotting to kill Jesus. Thomas is the one who speaks up because they're all looking at each other going, if we go down there, we're going to die. And Thomas is the one who speaks up and says, guys, let's go and die with him. We're not staying here. We're not letting him do this alone. Thomas was a courageous man. He just was a realist. And it depressed him sometimes. So, you know, he just couldn't see how things would work out well. But here he is following Jesus. Disciple number eight. Number nine is James, the son of Alphaeus. We really don't know much about him. But here's an interesting guy, Simon called Zelotes. Now, the Zealots, they were not a major political player during Jesus' lifetime. That's why Mark calls him Simon the Canaanite. The Canaanites were a, not to be confused with the Canaanites of the Old Testament, but the group of people Canaanites were a political party. They were the nationalistic wing of the Pharisees who believed the land of Canaan belonged to the Jews only, and therefore any foreigner must be expelled by force if necessary. Now, by the time Luke writes his gospel, Jesus has been dead for, and risen for you know, about 20 years by this time. By that time, those nationalists, those nationalistic Pharisees, they had become a trained group of assassins called the Zealots. And these guys would infiltrate crowded settings and they would 
knife uh, Roman soldiers and dignitaries and stuff. They were hated by the, by the Romans. Uh, Barnabas, uh, Barabbas was one of those guys. He the one who, who they asked for him instead of Jesus. He was a, a loyalist, a nationalist. And so uh, he was one of these guys. That doesn't mean that Simon here was a, a zealot because he joins Jesus before they were trained to be assassins. But what's interesting is it means he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee who left that group to follow Jesus and become his disciple. And you know, that shows why we should never write anyone off because of their initial hostility to Christ. You never know how they might respond and change. Well, next we see here Judas, the brother of James. Judas is the name Jesus gave to him. It means praise or praise from God. His original name was Labius. Most people called him Thaddeus. That's how you'll see him in, the, in most gospels. Both Labius and Thaddeus mean beloved child. So Judas was a guy that people just loved. I mean, that's why they called him that. You are a beloved child, man. Everybody likes you. But what's interesting is that Jesus gave him a name that would not show everybody loves him, but everybody, every, his life points to God, praise to God. It's not gonna be about you anymore, Judas. It's gonna be about God now, and your life's going to bring praise to God. Isn't that cool? Well, the last one, number 12 mentioned here is Judas Iscariot. Iscariot. Doesn't that sound evil? Judas Iscariot. We even say it, we just kind of, you know, think evil, you know? It just sounds bad. And it's not like Jesus beforehand, he's like giving everybody new names, and Judas is like, what's my new name going to be? Iscariot. The devil is inside you. Iscaria just means man from Kerioth. And it, it's a southern city in uh, Judah, which is interesting because it means Judas is the only one of the 12 apostles who came from the southern part of Israel. The rest of them were from Galilee in the north, which shows he was not someone who hung around with them very often. He was kind of an outsider. And it mentions, Luke mentions here, who was the traitor, literally who became the traitor, which means Judas didn't start off as a traitor. There's nothing about Judas, his character at this point, or the way he looked at Jesus that made him stand out as the one who would turn against Jesus. That's why at the Last Supper, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, they all asked him. It says they all asked him in turn, is it me? They knew their own hearts, but they didn't look at Judas and think, yeah, that dude's his name's Iscariot. You know, he's a bad guy. No, they, they didn't think that about him. But Jesus knew and he picked him. Kind of a question. If Jesus doesn't make mistakes and he knows everything beforehand, why did Jesus pick a man he knew would betray him to be one of the 12 apostles? He knew that would fail, basically, who would not become the nucleus of the church. Why would Jesus do that? I don't think the answer is that complicated. I think it's to show that God did everything to save everyone, everything in his power to save everyone, but some choose otherwise. Some choose destruction. You know, God want, wanted something to be very clear from the start. He loves everyone with an everlasting love. Judas is included in the statement, and having loved his disciples unto the very end, he washed their feet. Judas is included in that. The one he knew would betray him, the one who chose destruction, the son of perdition, the one who failed. He picked him because he loved him, because he wanted us to know he loves everyone. Now, that means... We have a choice to love him back or to not love him back. And so whether it was Judas or the stubborn Pharisees, this whole passage goes together. Whether it was Judas or whether it was the stubborn Pharisees, every one of us has a choice. And God's going to respect that choice. 
to love him back or to not, even though it brings about our own destruction. And so as the worship band comes up to close us out, I ask you this morning, what's your choice? Have you decided to love him back with everything that's in you? He gave us everything. Have you decided to love him back with everything that's in you? Or will you continue to live life on your own terms? You know, like Judas did, like those stubborn Pharisees did. See, the real question this morning isn't, why did Jesus choose Judas? The real question is, why did Jesus choose me? Right? Why did he choose me? He knew everything I would do. There really isn't any difference between Judas and Peter, is there? In their betrayal, right? Is there? Judas felt bad about it afterwards, didn't he? So did Peter. So what's the difference? Judas went out and hung himself. Peter, he repented. He didn't choose destruction. He chose life. And that's the choice that's before you today. That you're here today shows that you are interested in proximity to Jesus. Judas had that. The Pharisees had that. They followed him around. They knew what he was talking about. Question isn't will you have proximity to Jesus, it's will you love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind? Will you leave your bad religion behind, <laughs> not be stubborn, and love him back? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is true and alive. And we thank you for your love, which is toward all those that you've created. Lord, it says, You are the Savior of all men, especially those that believe. You have died for every single one of us. And you lived for every single one of us, just like Judas. So, Lord, now the ball's in our court. And we decide this morning to give you everything, to love you with all that's in us, to choose life. Jesus knew where the hearts and minds of the Pharisees were. He knew they had not only rejected him as Savior and Messiah, but also rejected God's clear word being presented to them. And yet, Jesus lovingly called out their heart problem and invited them into a deeper, closer relationship with God that was above their own current understanding of God the Father. Jesus still calls us today to surrender our own understanding of how we view God to see that He is so much bigger than our own understanding of Him. We cannot confine God to the small boxes of our minds. The knowledge of Him is vaster than the oceans put together, wider than the universe, He is above our comprehension. So, we ought to let Him tell us who He is with no presuppositions, no pretense. Let God dictate who He is through His Word. Listen and accept it. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.